Welcome to another podcast from Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club of California. Get tickets to upcoming live or online events at commonwealthclub.org slash Inforum. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at InforumSF. And now here's our program. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Commonwealth Club. My name is Vikram Iyer. I'm a former Obama White House senior policy advisor, and currently I have several colleagues who are working around the clock on the abortion crisis in this country um, over at the ACLU. But I am here today exclusively in a personal capacity as a member of the Commonwealth Club's Inforum Board, and I could not be more honored to be um, here today with reproductive rights legal historian, uh, Mary Ziegler. Uh, We are here today to discuss Mary's powerful and timely new book, Dollars for Life, the Anti-Abortion Movement and the Fall of the Republican Establishment. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mary. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, And, you know, before we get into it, I think it's important to begin with a recognition of of just how incredibly somber, historically unprecedented, some may say tragic, um, this event and this circumstances that led us to this court outcome actually are. And and that's based off of a little bit of of your writing, Mary, You, you reflect on this, but um, it, it seems that there's there's virtually no precedent in American law in which a right um, declared fundamental by our U.S. Supreme Court has been erased. You know, the, the court has overhauled constitutional protections in the past, um, but the complete retraction of the right to abortion really sets the nation on a course that arguably it, it hasn't seen before. And um, in Mary, you're in your writing in this book, in commentary that you've given um, in, in the media and other places, there's there's a concert of some who, or, or frankly, of many who who knew this day might come, um, but still oh. there was there was hope that the court may not take this drastic step. I think within the last year alone, um, you know, there was uh, cert granted uh, the, the the actual choice that the Supreme Court would review the Dobbs versus Jackson women health case was, was a tell. Um, earlier uh, in 2021, the Texas uh, state legislature sending a bill, SB 8, to the governor's desk uh, was another tell. Um, all of these steps that sort of were marching towards this moment. Um, but but that drastic step, I think, really still was seen as a jaw dropper for, for many around the, the country, certainly around the world, and even those very close observers. And it, it does not, however, maybe to, to try and infuse a note of optimism, um, end the fight for abortion rights by any means. Um, but it does feel that the battle returns to the states in many respects. The battle returns to people and like the, the motivation and willingness of where they will choose to stand, both in upcoming elections and future elections. Um, and the battle turns to how we think about party ideology in terms of how overall political institutions, as you write about in your book, are responsive to either um, the voices of the establishment ruling class, a new version of a more populist establishment ruling class within these parties, or some other evolution therein. And, and I, the reason I mentioned those states, Mary, is that in states like California, where I live, there will be attempts right out of the gates um, to try and memorialize the right to abortion at a state level through the Constitution or otherwise. 
Um, and yet in other states around the country that some of our listeners may be tuning in from today, there will be attempts to to not only uh, make sure that the repeal of Roe is the law of their state, but that there are further attempts to undercut abortion rights and access to reproductive care in general. So I'd love to, to sort of talk about the history that brought us to this moment. Um, but but just to set the scene for our audience, um, our guest today, Mary, uh, has been known as a, a premier expert on this issue, perhaps more so than anyone in this country. She's an expert on the law, history, and politics of reproductive care, of health care, on the conservative uh, nature of the United States political parties, including the GOP, um, from 1945 to the present. And she's one of the world's leading historians of the U.S. abortion debate. Um, she's the author of four other books on social movement struggles around reproduction, autonomy, and the law. And she is now a professor of law at the University of California, Davis School of Law, uh, Go Aggies. Uh, Mary, <laughs> um, welcome to the Commonwealth Club. And before before we really dive into it, I just want to say that you know this program today is virtual. Um, but the Commonwealth Club will be returning to a far more rigorous in-person programming this summer um, at its San Francisco headquarters, as well as this fall. You can learn a lot more about upcoming programs and special events at the club's website, www.commonwealthclub.org. And we'll be discussing a lot in the next hour, and there'll be a lot of time for you to ask your questions as well. So if you're watching along with us, please put your questions in the text chat on YouTube or in Zoom, and we'll try and surface them up. Um, let's get into it. I mean, this is, you know, as we mentioned, there's state responses brewing. There is shock um, certainly just from anyone that is a low information voter observing this happening and maybe never expecting it to come, as well as the the very rigorously engaged movement um, uh, workers that have been tracking this for a while. There's a bevy of corporate responses uh, in light of this decision, international outcry and concern in in, um, in light of this decision. Uh, but But if someone were to track the history that brought us to um, last month's Supreme Court decision, um, some might say that this was something that you could see the writing on the wall of. Um, some might say that if you point to um, observations in your own book, but also just the context of the political moment um, that bring us across the last few decades, even that there's a clear explanation here. And so I was just wondering if you could if you could talk us through your reaction to the moment through the lens of what you saw as the political ingredients to the movement that brought us uh, to this very day. Yeah, I mean, I think like a lot of people, I, I, I mean, I've been, you know, very publicly wrong about how quickly this would have happened. Um, so, I mean, I, I think I wrote multiple op-eds in the New York Times saying, you know, there's no way the Supreme Court will overrule Roe in one fell swoop as soon as its partisan composition changes. I thought at the time I wrote that that was just too too damaging to the court's legitimacy. And some of the groups I've studied on the anti-abortion side um, I think agreed with me, right? There were briefs, even in Dobbs, even after the court agreed to hear this case, even after the court had a conservative supermajority, there were still anti-abortion briefs that were hedging because I think there was a belief that it, it can't possibly be this soon because that could potentially damage the court's reputation. So I think when the moment came, I, I was no longer surprised because I had listened to the oral argument. And for, I think for insiders, there were no, I mean, it, it's, it was almost impossible to believe after the oral argument that the court would save abortion rights. But I think it still felt kind of 
dizzying and surreal simply because, not because the court had done this, but because I think of the way the court had done this. Um, Some listeners probably know that there was a leaked opinion in this case in May. Um, There were, of course, unsurprisingly, lots of criticisms of that opinion um, from friend and foe of it, um, of its reasoning. It was stunning that the leak happened, but it was even more stunning to me that the final draft really didn't differ much from the leaked draft. This was a a case where Justice Alito and the majority essentially thought they got it right and that critics' views were not really worth addressing, even though they obviously had the opportunity to do that. Um, Again, I think the fact that there was this much of a hurry to do this when the court had the votes clearly to go more slowly, maybe do some damage control the fact that the justices didn't avail themselves of those opportunities surprised me. And of course, the fact that the court undid a constitutional right is not something I've lived through. I don't know if it's something anybody's lived through. I mean, you can come up with sort of analogs. The Supreme Court has said that there was, for example, like a right to work in the 19 teens, but that wasn't really viewed by the people who held the right as fundamental. That was usually something employers were using to get rid of, you know, minimum wage laws or maximum hour laws. And the Supreme Court at one point said, you know, the death penalty is unconstitutional and then states tinkered with their death penalty laws and the court reinstituted the death penalty. But something like this, where people experience something as a right, and it's probably worth emphasizing, this is the best known, most recognized Supreme Court opinion. So this is not just simply a a right people view as fundamental. This is a right that everybody has heard of, right? Even people who don't agree with Roe know what it is. So it's still, I think I'm still sort of struggling to to make sense of it emotionally, even though historically I was pretty, you know, four books in, I should be prepared that this could have happened and was in that sense. Yeah. And we often think of the courts as, um, you know, sometimes modifying rights, sometimes expanding rights, uh, you know, the protection for racial discrimination in public schools in 1954, contraception use in 1965, marriage equality in 2015. It might not be a surprise that when we think of the protection of rights, we think of the courts and sometimes Mm -hmm. the imagery and the American imagination of even the Supreme Court justices confirmation hearings is often ripe with a decree from each prospective justice that they will view each case independently and separately on the facts and not try and come in um, with a a preconceived notion. Um, And yet, Despite those kind of elements of how we view the courts in the heart of the American imagination about, you know, our three branches of government, um, it's almost always that the Supreme Court has not acted in a vacuum, right? You, you <laughs> see that the decision that we attribute to the courts, whether we think it's a good decision or a bad decision, have come in the middle of a broader social movement, some sort of mobilization, um, strategies that have unfolded in the legislatures, in the streets, Um, And so there would never have been, even in the 1970s or 1973, a Roe v. Wade without the women's movement and the broader abortion rights movement. And and you've written about that um, that to help fuel it to that outcome. But it's not as though that that those movements have gone away. And yet we have the decision that we have. I was wondering if you could just reflect a little bit about what you think um, is the, 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 the kind of ingredients of the, the social moment, the political moment, 
um, that may have given light to this type of outcome, despite that there's always been a little bit of a mix of those that are pro-choice and pro-life that have been out there in these streets. And yet we get such a gargantuan toppling of Roe as we know it, um, given this, this current context. What, what's informing that really from a movement perspective? Well, I mean, I think one of the things that interested me um, and, and one of the things that made me want to write this book was that um, a lot of the most effective. So obviously what we think of social movements doing is making arguments. Right. So talking, for example, on the abortion rights side about equality for women and pregnant people or dignity or um, you know, public health outcomes for people who are pregnant, even people who are not seeking abortions, that essentially reasoning, right? And that the same idea about, um, you know, that what would have worked here or what mattered was the arguments that folks in the pro-life or anti-abortion movement were making about the flaws of Roe. And I think, I, I'm not trying to say that arguments and reasoning don't matter, but I think increasingly what I, what I learned in studying, the, you know, the anti-abortion movement from the inside, right, looking at the papers of people in the movement, talking to people in the movement, a lot of it had to do with um, how our institutions function in democracy, right, how the Republican Party operates, how money in politics works, how um, the Supreme Court justices view popular opinion and the questions of legitimacy of the court, that all of those things needed to change. Because essentially, while the arguments that the court makes in the Dobbs opinion are often you know, directly borrowed from pro-life or anti-abortion groups. Um, sometimes, they, you know, there literally are opinion, like draft opinions overruling Roe, by, Roe v. Wade written by, you know, anti-abortion um, lawyers and academics. And this opinion echoes a lot of those arguments. But that's not really what changed because many of those arguments have been available since the 70s, if not before. So if you're asking yourself what had to change now, obviously luck is an element of it. I mean, I don't want to overstate or make it seem as if this was inevitable. It wasn't, right? I mean, you could imagine a different outcome if Donald Trump had lost the Electoral College as well as the popular vote, or if Ruth Bader Ginsburg had retired during the Obama administration, like we wouldn't be here. So there's nothing inevitable about that. But to the extent there were strategies that really made a difference, they were kind of about changing the rules of the game, not the arguments that were being made. And I wanted to write about that, I think, in part, because obviously it's, it's crucial to the future of abortion in America, but it's also just crucial to the future of America full stop, right? If our democracy is being changed to advance these arguments about Roe v. Wade, that will have fallout well beyond the abortion debate. And, and that premise that the the institutions might be changing, that democratic outcomes might be changing, you attack at uh, or come at from a few different perspectives in your book that, that I'd love to, to dig into. Uh, I know campaign finance law is a part of that, and we'll get to that in a moment, but I'm fascinated by your analysis of what you describe as sort of the gutting of the establishment within the Republican Party. Um, sometimes when we think of just democracy on full display now and sort of how quickly um, the whims of the party can go to what is politically convenient. Folks may uh, not need to look much further than, you know, January 6th commission hearings that are, that are, that are fanning the flames in prime time around what happened on that same day or that notorious day. Um, and then where party leadership is adjusting to in their position on it based off of where they think party leadership is inside the, the heart of the party, i.e. Donald Trump. But if we were to go much deeper um, and new, more nuance into your analysis of where the party is now beyond just macro signals of the former president or what happened on one lone day, um, you really take a look at 
different anxieties that have fueled Republican uh, narratives, as well as different um, threads of, of culture, of religion, of, of populism. And, and specifically, you write in your book that to begin with, the GOP had long courted the kind of voters whose loyalty Trump later captured. For decades, Republican had fueled whites' anxieties about immigration, about demographic change, Christian nationalism, and some evangelical Protestants' investments in like a masculine populism. Uh, all of those attributes didn't really begin with Trump. But once he was in office, however, you write, Republican politicians had effectively managed these forces. GOP voters had fallen in love with populists before, but the establishment had had always found a way to sideline them. I was wondering if you can reflect on this a bit for us, that this transition within the Republican Party from an establishment institution to sort of being chipped away at by these kind of other threads of populist influence and, and where that started from and what that means maybe in a more modern context. Yeah, I mean, probably the most sort of powerful or chilling story as I was writing the book was the story of Pat Buchanan. Um, as a, you know, a child, I had no idea Pat Buchanan was as popular as he was with the GOP base. Um, Buchanan was, I think for many Americans like Donald Trump was good TV. He would go to rallies, he would wave a pitchfork, he would make fun of his primary opponents. He won many of the early primaries. But then there came a point when uh, kind of traditional Republican leaders, so there's always the question of who's the establishment and who's not, but there was a group of kind of perennial donors, committeemen, people who had always been power brokers in the GOP, whose primary goal really was to win. Most of them were um, had financial interests that they were protecting, and they were not excited about someone like Pat Buchanan, not necessarily because they disapproved of his policies, but because they thought that he was too risky a bet for a general election. So the more ascendant Buchanan became, the more the party essentially used money to make him go away, right? One of the Koch brothers was Buchan was uh, Bob Dole, who was Buchanan's primary opponent, his campaign vice chairman. Uh, Dole was tapping into tremendous amounts of money, soft money and other kinds of money from everybody from, you know, the people who make Gallo wines to Nabisco to cookies to tobacco. And so um, one of the things that mattered from a campaign finance standpoint was that the the traditional party leaders didn't have the, the tools from a money standpoint to make Donald Trump go away. That isn't to say Donald Trump was winning the money battle or had the most outside spending or any of that. But it did mean that he always had a lifeline that the party establishment might have been able to deny him in earlier decades. But populism in the GOP obviously is not just about campaign finance. It's pretty clear when you study it. The rise of conservative media and conservative social media has been profoundly important, right? I think in part, historically, um, the kinds of uh, not necessarily centrist, but electability-oriented Republicans um, had traditionally had better relationships with the legacy media, which had given them more of a platform to make their arguments. Um, with the advent of first conservative talk radio in the 90s and then um, other forms, you know, Fox News being started in 1996 and other networks um, like OAN uh, and Newsmax starting a little bit later, um, the calculus changed entirely. So the more ideologically pure or populist a politician was, often the more airtime the person got on conservative media. Um, and conservative media kind of created a cycle that reinforced the polarization of the electorate that was already happening. Um, and the rise of what, um, what scholars call negative and effective partisanship, the idea essentially that you, you don't vote for somebody because you like them, 
you vote for them because you hate the other party's candidate, which makes it possible for you to support candidates you really don't like, right? Because it's just so unthinkable for you that a candidate from the other party would be worse. And that reinforces partisanship too, because there's very little check then on candidates emerging from primaries not being extremist or populist because voters are less likely to check that impulse. Um, So there were lots of other things that led to the rise of Trump. I don't mean to say it was just about campaign finance or just about abortion, but there was a moment, I think, in the history of struggles over abortion when people in the anti-abortion movement thought, one, Um, this focus on electability is hurting us because when the moment arrives, we're not sure that the Republican Party wants Roe v. Wade to be overturned. We're not sure they think they benefit from Roe v. Wade being overturned. And we definitely don't want to be in a repeat situation of Ronald Reagan, who was in some ways a hero to the anti-abortion movement, because Reagan was popular enough that when the time came, he could essentially say, I'm not going to deal with your priorities. I'm going to do what I want to do. They wanted as someone who was weak enough in a party that was beholden enough to conservative movements that the party would not just see through the reversal of Roe, but go beyond that. Because, of course, the anti-abortion movement's goal is not the reversal of Roe. That's part of it. It's, you know, a ban on abortion, the recognition of fetal personhood that would mean abortion would be illegal in California as much as it is in Alabama. So um, it was really striking to me that it became crucial to the movement to change how the GOP did business, to change and essentially to kind of dismantle some of the traditional power structures in the party that had made it hard for anti-abortion groups to break through or call the shots in the ways they wanted to. And, you know, the the other there's there's certainly a lot there. And I think from each of those threads, it feels like there's this constellation of different forces that result in 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 kind of the modern contours of the party. Would you say, though, or in the book, as you analyze kind of the gutting of the GOP establishment, as it were, do you feel like it was that that is something to take note of within the party politics in terms of how we kind of get the conservatism that we have now? Or do you feel that? following that through line between all those different forces shaping and reshaping the party ultimately did give us the moment of, of kind of giving life to the anti-abortion movement. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, all of the factors are important. I think what I was writing against in part was a narrative and you'll hear this a lot, right? I mean, one thing that always strikes me, people will say, you know, we're having a keynote panel on abortion. Is it okay if any men speak? Right. And they're not talking about trans men like cisgender men, you know, because this is a women's issue. That's usually the argument. And I think the more I wrote, the more I realized that the effort to get rid of Roe v. Wade was not it was a democracy issue, too. I'm not trying to say it's not an issue for people who can get pregnant. Obviously, we're already seeing things happening in states that make clear that that isn't true. But um, that there was a clear sense among the people I've studied. And it's worth saying, I will say the people who are the kind of at the heart of this book have read the book and have told me they think they like it. Right. I mean, that's another thing that's striking. This is not, this is not being viewed by people in the anti-abortion movement as like a hit job, right? They will say, you know, this is what we think. And so there was a clear, I think, sense that from their point of view, the abortion battle is like the human rights era, right struggle of our era. And if the democracy needs to change or even change to the point where it's unrecognizable, you know, so be it. That's worth the price, I think. And so I wanted to tell, I think that's that's kind of the main story in terms of how the GOP is changing, that this is something that has consequences for the rest of democracy. And it doesn't help us to think of abortion or even other reproductive issues as something that happen, you know, that don't don't concern us unless we fit a particular demographic profile. 
That that's a very good point because if if that's the framework behind which um, anyone sees this issue as a human rights issue, particularly on the anti-abortion side, uh, movement side, that the other really important um, thread in your book that you examine deeply and, and quite quite creatively is how campaign finance laws. To your earlier point about restructuring elements of, of democratic processes, investment, and outcome as we know it, how that ended up being a key strategy of right to lifers that are out there. And and you write in your book um, that by the mid 2000s, conservative attorneys and movements sometimes took the lead um, from the from the right to life world, sometimes took the lead in major campaign finance cases and pursued a different tactical plan um, than those favored by the right to life litigators. But even when other conservative movements dictated strategy, right to lifers understood more than enough about what changed campaign finance rules could mean for the Republican Party, arguably giving them more their movement, more of a chance to take away power from the GOP establishment and allowing them to push and advance what they, as you articulated, believe is a human rights issue. Curious if you could, um, and you do this incredible job of unpacking this in the book, but if you could reflect a little bit about that that over that that sort of convergence of um, critical campaign finance law reforms and and where the the kind of pro life movement or anti abortion movement showed up in that and how it sort of led us to this current moment today. Yeah, I mean it's kind of counterintuitive, right? Because if you think who would have the most skin in the game with defeating campaign finance reform, you would think of people with the most money, right? Which is usually not anti-abortion groups. Now, again, anti-abortion groups sometimes have a lot of money, right? The Susan B. Anthony list, for example, has you know tens of millions of dollars in its in its budget, but you know that's a drop in the bucket compared to some other groups like you know the Koch-backed Americans for Prosperity. So. Why this happened in large part was Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which was when the court had an opportunity to reverse Roe, had a conservative supermajority in 1992 and and demurred, right? Didn't do it. And in the fallout from this, some anti-abortion leaders thought the problem here is that we don't have enough influence over the GOP. The GOP will nominate um, the people who are the easiest to confirm who tend to be either centrists or people with no paper trail. And those are not the people who will reliably pull the trigger when the time comes to get rid of Roe. And this strategy to gain more influence in the GOP um, in part involved money, right? So there was an argument that if the movement mastered the rules of campaign finance, that would mean the election of more Republicans. It would mean more influence over sitting Republicans. It would mean um, proving the worth of the anti-abortion movement to a Republican party that was doubting it at the time, essentially saying, even if you're not sure being pro-life or anti-abortion is good politics, we will help you master the rules of super PACs and nonprofits. We'll prove our worth that way. Um, and so initially that was kind of the mission. And over over time, the mo- there were lawyers in the movement, Jim Bopp of National Right to Life Committee being key, who began to oppose literally any campaign finance regulation. Um, so this there were efforts to deregulate um, campaign contributions, campaign expenditures, to eliminate disclosure rules, fuel the spread of dark money. There was a belief that disclosure in particular was key because donors in progressive states like California who might want to give to the anti-abortion movement would be afraid to do that if they thought their names would become public. Um, And there was also, I think, as you mentioned, Vikram, a lot of strategic opportunism, the movement recognizing that at times, even when its plans didn't work, right? So Citizens United, which many of you have heard of, for the anti-abortion movement was supposed to be a dark money case. That's what they wanted to have happen. They wanted the court to say, whatever, you know, this corporate money stuff, 
one way or another, that's not what's important here. What's important is that you don't need to disclose who's spending money um, on political ads. And that, of course, backfired. But as soon as Citizens United came down, people in the anti-abortion movement rallied, as Vikram described, and said, essentially, um, this can change the balance of power in the GOP because Citizens United, um, as many of you know, uh, allowed for unlimited independent expenditures by corporations. We would think that those corporations would be maybe businesses or for-profit corporations. In practice, it turned out very quickly to be ideological corporations and nonprofits as well. And so that was a big stream of money, the anti-abortion movement recognized, that the GOP establishment could certainly participate in. The GOP establishment could have its own super PACs and nonprofits, but it couldn't control them in the same way. It couldn't pull the strings in the same way. And so the anti-abortion movement looked at the the post-Citizens United world and said, this is a world where we can destabilize the status quo in the GOP, and we can maybe create a scenario where we are pulling the strings more than the traditional party leadership is. And maybe that's a world where Roe v. Wade can go. And, you know, it's you've written this, uh, not in the book, but in a, in a recent piece for the New York Times about how this outcome really creates a tectonic shift for American democracy writ large. And I think as you've, in this conversation today, as you've spoken about evolutions from kind of more establishment conservatism to populist ones, um, to campaign finance elements, to the fact that this fight is not over just because of the Dobbs decision. Uh, we can, a lot of us listening into this conversation can can hear how this changes the tune of democratic process and outcomes in a major way. Um, but, you know, for quite some time, uh, even after the Dobbs case was agreed to be heard by the Supreme Court last fall, um, there was a lot of polling out there for, for those that might not be following this case or these discussions closely day to day, that most Americans and American women um, believed in Roe and their rights to abortion. Um, and so it sort of felt that if anyone were to hear or see a headline from from you, Mary, that says, actually, this case doesn't just affect your, uh, uh, your, your right to abortion um, or your reproductive care or your health care decisions, it actually affects our democracy. It feels like that could be met with a little bit of get out of here in the same way that polling just a few months ago didn't necessarily believe that, that, that folks were, were coming after Roe. And I was just wondering if you could reflect a little bit on from, from all of the, the research, the writing, the speaking, and the, and the, the deep, deep analysis you've had, you've done across the political mind uh, and institutions in America, this sense of uh, this is not coming or we've heard kind of like a boy crying wolf that this might be gutted away before has sometimes been described as resulting in an apathy from a movement perspective. Um, is that a fair statement? Is that an unfair statement? And for anyone that might be listening with a skeptical eye and says, Mary, is this really going to be a game changer on democracy? I mean, I get the logic when it comes to reproductive rights, but how is this impacting our democracy broadly? I was just wondering if you could kind of just speak to the magnitude of what's happened here, given that the severity of some of these impacts, even if we've been calling for it for a while, haven't always been appreciated in, in the core of the American electorate. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think there has been a boy who cried wolf kind of quality to this. I mean, I think 
There are lots of reasons for that. I mean, states have been passing bans on abortion for decades and they've never gone into effect, right? So you may hear, you may see a headline that says like, oh, Alabama is just banning abortion again. Like, so what? Because you, none of these laws have actually been on the books. And anyone of reproductive age, and I mean, even really, really broadly defined, has never been alive at a time when abortion was illegal. So I think just on the abortion side alone, it's really hard to predict what this is going to look like. And that's true of legal policy and, and politics as well. Um, we don't know, for example, there's there's been a pretty robust effort on the part of states um, to think about whether they want to stop abortions from happening in other states. So st- one state trying to regulate the conduct of people in a different state that would be legal in that state is not something we've seen really since the 19th century. But I think on the, on the democracy side, it's very clear within the anti-abortion movement that um, they believed that the court did not overrule Roe in 1992 because the court was worried about popular opinion and about the legitimacy of the court. Essentially, the, we know historically that the court is obviously not democratically accountable, right? The court, the members of the court have lifetime appointments. They're not elected. Um, they No Supreme Court justice has ever successfully been removed through impeachment. And yet, historically, there was a sense in which um, democ- democratic constraints, right? What people thought had something to do with uh, the court's behavior, right? That the court would be less likely um, to do things that would produce a major backlash, that would either produce disobedience of the court or even um, some sort of formal sanction from Congress. Um, and that I think that was why many of us believe the court wouldn't overrule Roe or wouldn't overrule Roe quickly, because that had been the practice for decades. Um, and I think there was a deliberate effort on the part of the anti-abortion movement to get a different kind of justice. That's to say not a conservative justice, not a justice who thought Roe was wrongly decided, because that's been around since the 80s, but justices who were um, unconcerned about these kind of legitimacy constraints that we had seen operating in the 80s and 90s and beyond. And that's one democracy consideration, right? A court that would overturn the best known Supreme Court decision, um, despite polling suggesting that that's unpopular, is a court that will do who knows what on other issues, um, including access to the vote, including um, who gets to appoint electors for presidential elections. And I think on the Republican Party side, the idea that the establishment would be hollowed out, um, obviously many people listening to this probably are thinking to the point I make in the book that the establishment was always interested in racial dog whistles and was always making promises about abortion. But this commitment to electability had some kind of moderating effect, right? It meant that the kind of people who would do what was done on January 6th we're not the kind of people the party really wanted in power because it would just make the odds of failure on election day too high. The kind of erasure of those people and their replacement with populists, I think, makes possible some of what we saw on January 6th, right? Uh, there isn't, if, if the, the emphasis on electability is, is a selfish one about clinging to power, it's still one that tended to moderate the impulses of people who had no interest in the democracy altogether. And I think the, the, sidelining of a lot of those people, if not all of those people, um, is a dangerous thing for the democracy too. So the struggles had kind of, I think, dual effects on the democracy that are worrisome. Um, and, and that'll continue too. I think there was also some of the people who I think are, are complacent now are essentially saying, well, you know, the anti-abortion movement won. So there, this is the dog that caught the car 
anti-abortion voters don't really care about this anymore. And I've even read people saying, you know, now anti-abortion voters will will vote for Democrats because it's in their economic self-interest. And all of that is just like a complete, I mean, you would never say that if you studied the anti-abortion movement, because I think the, the goal has always been fetal personhood and Roe being gone just makes that, that goal seem a little bit more in reach. It doesn't complacency on the right. And, you know, it's interesting because as you just reflected on that 1992 uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey kind of reaction, it felt like the the anti-abortion groups expanded their focus, as you just said, in terms of what's the profile of a jurist that could be confirmed at the Supreme Court to make sure that they were stacking um, different courts, uh, sorry, different benches at the state level and obviously all the way up to the, the federal Supreme Court level in their image. Um, but, but it feels that, as you just hinted at, that when it comes to what the image of a candidate looks like now, um, their work is, is, is only just begun, right? So in addition to, to court stacking and influencing outcomes there, um, as there's been a poll after poll suggesting that for this November, our upcoming midterm elections, um, it, it, on the one hand, it feels like um, there has been some uh, question as to whether the foregone conclusion that the the ruling uh, the party in, in ruling majority at a midterm year, in this case the Democrats, are certain to lose it this November. That maybe in light of of the airwaves and media oxygen being taken up about Dobbs, being taken up about January sixth, being taken up by tragic um, gun violence across the country, that maybe there's a little bit more of a toss up and a closer margin than previously was considered when it came to whether Republicans would would take majorities or Democrats. Um, but regardless of what the poll numbers say today versus what they end up materializing on Election Day in November, there's no doubt that that both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party will be spending the next several months either trying to speak to why this moment is continues to be in the image of the type of America we want, one without Roe, or why this moment is exactly why people need to show up and demand the type of social movement that for the last uh, you know 50 years, nearly 70 percent of, of women in this country have supported. That is the right to, to, to choice. And I'm just curious if no one has a crystal ball, and I know that you're not a, a political pundit, but just as you've seen the movement lead us to that moment where the anti-abortion um, uh, movement had, had described themselves as needing to take a look at candidate profiles for the court, what do you think is going through the minds of both parties now in terms of candidate profiles uh, for this November? Do you see them trying to put forward faces of folks that are decidedly on one side of that equation or the other? Or is the statewide game now less about politicians and what they look like and what they'll do on this issue and more about other elements like telemedicine abortion or the right to certain mm-hmm. medicines being made? Just kind of curious how you're viewing the landscape between now and November based off of historically how movements have reacted to seminal moments along the way. Yeah, I mean, I think there, there are a couple different moving parts. Obviously, the more things move to the states, um, the more local your message needs to be, whether you're conservative or progressive. And so I think there's there hasn't been as much of, and, and I think the other thing that's complicating this is that there's so many states now um, that are effectively politically uncompetitive, right? So there there are lots of, lots of struggles around abortion and reproductive health now that are being shaped not by general elections, but by primaries, right? Which means that you often see policies diverging more from what you would expect based on polling, right? So there are a lot of conservative states that are 
never, ever, ever in my lifetime probably going to have a Democratic governor or legislature that have, you know, slight majorities in favor of some kind of legal abortion. Like they would probably land on some kind of like a ban in, you know, 12 weeks or something. And they're all, almost all those states are going to end up with bans at fertilization. So um, that's because of this dynamic. So I think there's a lot of kind of local strategy. We're even seeing all the way down to kind of direct democracy solutions. Um, Kansas is voting August 2nd. Um, Kansas Republicans have done this deliberately during a primary to have a state constitutional amendment that would say there is no right to abortion in the Kansas Constitution, contrary to what the state Supreme Court there said. You have kind of the other side of the coin in Michigan, which has a pre-row criminal law. Their um, voters are being asked to say that there is, in fact, a right to abortion in the Michigan Constitution. Um, I think at the national level, uh, there's a lot of effective messaging on this. It's, It's unclear how much Congress will matter because a lot there is going to depend on the filibuster and who's in the White House. So some Republicans have considered the idea of a federal ban on abortion, right, a federal statute. Some have said maybe the ban kicks in six weeks, maybe kicks in at fertilization. Um, I don't think that would work for the Republicans unless they abolish the filibuster. Same goes for efforts on the Democratic side to codify some kind of protection for abortion, you know, absent abolition of the filibuster, that's not going to happen either. But I think obviously Roe being gone raises the stakes for that and at least forces people in both parties to kind of put their chips on the table um, and explain where they stand. And the same goes, I think, for access for medication abortion. So I think going forward, we're going to have kind of a a two-track conversation, one about what kind of rights we think we have or want to have, um, and two about what access actually looks like. And that's going to be a mess too. It involves you know, the relationship between federal law and state law, the right to travel, a lot and a lot of things that really are not very well understood or developed in the law. So there'll be a lot of probably confusing and complicated legal things that both parties need to deal with, in addition to, um, you know, talking about what they want the world to look like. The other probably really key thing is that as much as we all are focusing on 2022 and 2024, if you study this historically, and if you look at what happens in other countries, um, one thing that's always clear to me is that uh, we can't know what the aftermath of a decision will look like two years or even four years later. So two years after Roe v. Wade, um, John Paul Stevens was nominated to the Supreme Court. He was asked zero questions about Roe v. Wade and confirmed unanimously. Neither political party wanted to talk about abortion. If you had asked people in 1975, 1976, was there like a big political mobilization against Roe v. Wade? They would have been like, what? No, of course not. Like, this is not even a big deal. Like, when Roe came down on ABC News that night, there were two stories that aired first because it just wasn't that big of a deal. So to know whether Dobbs is going to unleash some kind of mass movement, I can't tell you based on what's going to happen in 2022 or 2024 or 2025. Like, it, it, I might be able to tell you. And the, the same, but I might not. The same thing in Ireland. I mean, Ireland had a ban on abortion that was repealed um, in recent years. What really galvanized uh, a movement in Ireland was not the fact of the ban, but when people who were seeking miscarriage care began to die, right? So it's it's sometimes what a decision means on the ground. It's sometimes how people respond to it. Essentially, whether there is a backlash or not depends on much more than what the Supreme Court said. Um, so we won't know. Um, and we also will get to decide right? whether there's a backlash. It's not something the Supreme Court gets to determine. That's right. And I think a lot of, of our own listeners today 
um, tuning in will we'll probably be disagreeing in the same way that the rest of the country might be debating or disagreeing about whether to mourn or celebrate the destruction of this constitutional right. Um, but, but you write that there should be no illusion about its price and the toll that it will take on the country, everything from forced pregnancy to, to having to travel out of state to seek reproductive care. Maybe you don't even have time off from work. Um, I just kind of was curious whether you could reflect on um, the, the, the devastating blow that this creates for maternal health outcomes. And yet you mentioned a few kind of political responses, you know, actions in Kansas, actions in Michigan, um, potential federal action. You know, this week, the House is gearing up for a package of votes um, to try and, and create some additional protections for those that might have to leave the state, for example. Um, are, are these glimmers of optimism um, or, or is it, as you said, a little too early to tell? I mean, I, I know that you've done a legal analysis here and aren't necessarily prescribing a dedicated opinion for yourself personally. But for those Americans that, that aren't debating this and that are actually mourning the destruction of this right, uh, are these early political actions moments for them to, to feel like, OK, there's a fight that's going to help grab this back? Um, or does that remain to be seen and really only something that can be measured over a much longer period of time? Yeah, I mean, for people who are mourning the decision, there are definitely signs of hope. I mean, I think, again, history tells us that this is not like if, if people who are progressives are in this for like two years or three years, it's not going to work. I mean, that's I'm, I mean, the lesson of the past five decades is the reason in part this worked for conservatives and for the anti-abortion movement is because they kept at it for half a century and they tried a lot of different things and a lot of smart people experimented for a long time. And I'm not saying it's going to take half a century, but I think it, 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 this is a situation where a lot of people who like the idea of abortion rights have been accustomed to the courts getting rid of every bad law or lots of bad laws at any rate for decades and have been accustomed to the idea that these rights are protected and they haven't had to do the kind of spade work that conservatives have had to do. So I think that what we're seeing so far is definitely that there's there's a lot of energy and a lot of ideas, but they'll they'll probably have to be staying power if progressives are going to do anything with that. I don't think this is going to be a quick fix. And then I think the question becomes, th there's always been an interesting dynamic, right? And their polling on abortion is not great. But if we take there to be some truth in polling, it would suggest that there's a a, a small but committed group of people who are very opposed to abortion, maybe 20% of Americans who consistently say they want all abortions to be illegal. Um, there is, uh, and then there's a kind of larger but more divided group of Americans that want abortion to be legal. So there's a lot of people in the middle who want only some abortions to be legal. And there's a fairly large group, like about a third, who want all abortions to be legal. But there's not that many people who want outright bans. But that group tends to be less motivated, historically more divided, more heterogeneous. And so one of the questions, of course, in a post-Obs America is, does the fact that there seems to be a majority that didn't want this to happen translate into political action? And of course, some of that will boil down to how committed people are and how much of a priority this is for people, right? If this is the sort of thing where people say, well, I don't like this, but you know, it's not as important as fill in the blank, like COVID, inflation, whatever, which I think has often happened. And we, we've even seen it in presidential administrations. I've been asked by reporters, I think just yesterday, why was it that when Democrats had a, enough of a majority in 1993 or 2009, why was it that we didn't see the codification of abortion rights? And quite clearly, if you look in presidential libraries, the answer is because those presidents said, this can wait. This isn't that important. We have the Supreme Court. Um, and, you know, 
other things, it was usually in that case, healthcare reform are more important. So that dynamic's been a defining one for some time. And the the question is whether Dobbs breaks that cycle, I think, or not. Uh, If you're just tuning in and joining us, Mary Ziegler, author of Dollars for Life, the Anti-Abortion Movement and the Fall of the Republican Establishment. And for those um, who are with us right now live, um, please uh, just a, a friendly reminder that if you have questions to please go ahead and put them in the chat, either on the YouTube page or in Zoom. You know, you sort of spoke to this, Mary, just a few moments ago, but I just kind of want to put a finer point on it, that the, the how sort of election outcomes happen are really going to be defined around um, who shows up and how people show up. And, and it feels that that right now um, there are there's a lot of chatter about how much momentum there has been in the last um, several weeks, uh, protests around the country, a lot of corporate action. I would say that perhaps more corporate action than, than folks that may have seen on this issue in the past with different companies changing their healthcare plans and what it means to access care and reproductive care if you work at certain companies. Um, from wall to wall and different corners of American society, this seems top of mind. At the same time, and you just spoke to this, so um, I, I, I want to get at it from the direction of how this is going to stay top of mind in 2024. You know, part of what was also on the minds of Americans is the economy, is the question of inflation, is the question of gas prices. Um, it, for, from your examination in your book about the movement and how so long view that it has to be and how many varied and creative tactics, whether it's reforming democracies or reforming the makeup of the type of candidate you even put up for a judicial post, it sounds like this stuff is, is not going to be easy and it's going to take some time. And yet for everyone that probably asks you every day, what does this mean for the midterms? What does this mean in 22 and 24? It really does feel like a question of keeping the American headspace focused on this issue if it's going to remain top of mind in the next few months, knowing, of course, that our attention span quickly shifts and evolves for other things going on. So I I would just kind of curious what your view is on the midterms, but more through the lens of given that the anti-abortion movement has always focused on the long view and arguably the pro-choice movement is it wants to not only focus on the long view now and, and do the investment for the next several years and decades that it takes, but also has an election right in front of it. Uh, what advice or what suggestions or what reflections do you have in making sure that anyone that wants to remedy this at the ballot box this November um, is able to use all the tools in their toolkit? to do so. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important, obviously. Um, I mean, you know, you hear President Biden saying vote, which is part of it. But I think um, where you vote is really important now. Um, If you are in a state that has a law that says something like life begins at fertilization or Arizona has a personhood law, um, and you ask me, and I've studied this for a long time, what does that law mean? I, in good faith, can tell you I have no idea, right? So who's going to decide what that law means is going to be local prosecutors and local sheriffs. Who decides whether that law gets repealed is going to be state legislators and the governor. Um, Who decides whether that law is unconstitutional under state law is going to be state Supreme Court judges who are often either sometimes they're elected, sometimes they're subject to merit retention. So this is a moment, if you haven't done it before, whether you care about this issue really, regardless of what you think, that you should get a lot more informed about and aware of local elections, because a lot of the future of this issue will turn on that. Um, I think direct democracy is something people need to look at, too, because there's, I think, a pretty obvious 
um, disconnect sometimes between states' partisan preferences and views on abortion, right? That there are some people in America, because of negative and effective partisanship, who are never going to vote for a Democrat, but who may not be excited about the type of abortion legislation coming out of their states. So I think looking into other ways you can translate um, views in your community into something on the ballot, and that may be more a 2024 type of thing than a 2022 type of thing. Um, and then I think it's actually relatively easy if you're trying to get people in your community to care about this issue because stuff is happening all the time. It's not as if the Supreme Court decided Dobbs and there's nothing to talk about anymore. We have no idea. I mean, and again, if you ask me and I've talked to, you know, the people who wrote SB8, I was on the phone with them maybe two weeks ago. I have no idea what they're, they don't know what they're going to do. So how far states are going to go to try to regulate interstate conduct or regulate medication abortion how far they're going to go in regulating information about abortion, the kind of at the intersection of speech and conduct, how far they're going to go in accessing um, people's digital data and figuring out who's having abortions, whether there's going to be a renewed push to punish women, which there has, has failed so far, but that could change. Um, all of these things are live issues. So there will be something to keep this issue front of mind in the months to come. And we'll start to see how these laws actually affect people on the ground, right? So there's starting to be stories that emerge of what it means when these laws go into effect. So if this is something that you want to matter to people, um, you can use all of the stuff that's happening um, to, to tell people what this means in concrete terms. Because I think there's always, um, for people of really lots of generations, like Gen, Gen Z and certainly millennials, this has always been an abstraction, right? So it may feel bad to you to say you had a constitutional right and it got taken away, but very few people really know what that means. So if you start to hear stories about what, what happens when this right is taken away, what does that actually do? Um, I think that's when people, when people may become more motivated to. That, that, um, that question about the generational split is a really interesting one because you, you framed that a little differently earlier in the conversation where you said that most of uh, mo most folks have uh, have only been alive within a kind of a generational mindset of having access to abortion. And now um, we're, we'll start to have a new generation of folks growing up, you know, being born today, um, going to school today, perhaps in your classroom this fall. Um, that that won't have that access. I was curious as you think of your role both as a legal historian but also as a teacher of the law, you know, directly and kind of uh, trying to gear up the next generation of legal minds and practitioners and attorneys. Um, it's easy to sort of see this moment with a lot of cynicism um, instead of optimism. And I know that maybe a law professor's um, sole goal is, is not necessarily to make everyone feel Pollyannish or happy-go-lucky about the moment. <laughs> but since we are talking yeah. about a new generation growing up with this, living with this, and, and arguably being trained to, to address this for, for the decades and years it'll take to come to, uh, to, to manage it. I was curious what kind of headspace or what kind of engagement you've had from younger people, um, perhaps in the classroom or maybe otherwise, um, to be able to, to rise to the occasion or meet the moment. Yeah, I mean, I think the important thing to remember, I mean, a lot of historians, and this is going to sound pretty rich right now, but a lot of historians have said it wasn't necessarily the greatest thing for the abortion rights movement that Roe v. Wade happened because it created a sense of complacency. It created a sense that the Supreme Court is where we get our rights. And, you know, if you're a supporter of abortion rights, like you won and it's over. Like there's actually a, I remember an email, uh, not an email, but a memo someone from NARAL sent 
1974 saying like, we're not going to debate anyone pro life anymore because the Supreme Court spoke and the case is closed. Like we don't need to have a debate anymore. And you just fell, you shake your head, right? And so sometimes backlash to Supreme Court opinions can be an incredibly powerful way to organize mass movements um, to get people who have been complacent, not only to stop being complacent, but to see what they can do to change the way our democracy works. That certainly happened in the aftermath of Roe on the right. And so while this is a setback, I think sometimes setbacks are moments of real creativity and inspiration if you support abortion rights. And so I think I try to encourage younger people um, to think of it that way. And people, especially Gen Z people who are most of my students, um, they have different attitudes generally as a rule. Um, they tend to be more open about questions of sexuality and reproduction than, you know, I'm a geriatric millennial, so with an emphasis on geriatric, but the folks my age were not as open um, when they were the same age. And so I think that there's a possibility of kind of um, rethinking what people want a movement around reproductive rights or reproductive justice to look like, right? It doesn't have to be a defense of Roe v. Wade. It doesn't have to be a defense of Casey. It doesn't have to be anchored to a Supreme Court. You don't have to think the Supreme Court is where you get rights. Like there are a lot of things that kind of came with Roe that were probably not great for the abortion rights movement. And those don't need to be an anchor anymore. Um, and I think there's also a danger on the right of complacency, right? I mean, there's a real sense that the way you get what you want now, if you're conservative, is through the Supreme Court. And it, we know from history that the Supreme Court doesn't act in a vacuum, whether it's conservative or, or not, right? Um, so I think that, that the hope would be that people can take this as an opportunity to rethink how they want reproductive rights to look, how they want the country to look, um, and to think, you know, to realize that they, they can do something, but if they want things to change, they have to do something. And another feature of that complacency, maybe kind of informed by this more modern um, internet everything generation, is the, the ability to be able to um, see a physician um, through telemedicine, through a similar Zoom screen like the one that we're on today, and be able to, to access abortion pills and abortion reproductive care and medication through mail. Um, one audience question that we have is how can we be, or, or can you reflect on the landscape of analysis of when it comes to interstate commerce, um, how, how can folks or how, how do you expect the movement to be proactive in either pushing at that or guarding against any pushback on that um, if and as it's becoming threatened at a state by state level to move those products across state lines? Yeah, there, there are a couple of different things we're, we're seeing. I mean, on the legal front, there's some sense that maybe the Biden administration is going to take the position that federal food and drug laws um, preempt contrary state rules on abortion medication. Um, we're seeing... Uh, abortion providers try to circumvent or, or deal with state laws by putting mobile clinics up close to state lines. We've seen, um, you know, literally floating abortion clinics in the Gulf of Mexico. A doctor from UCSF just set one of those up, patterned on women um, on the waves, which was an initiative near Ireland. Um, we've seen, uh, you know, businesses offering to reimburse employees for travel out of state. And we've seen lots of states um, and more, I think, to come taking steps to protect their doctors and their citizens from out-of-state legal consequences, essentially things saying we're not going to extradite our doctors to face criminal charges elsewhere. We're not going to entertain lawsuits against our doctors and citizens for participating in abortion. And I think there'll need to be more work of that kind done, um, and there'll probably be more work 
that would need to be done on the financial side too, because obviously travel out of state is more financially feasible for some people than it is for other people. Um, but travel, I think, is something that's also um, it's a an area of a lot of uncertainty because, like, so much we don't know a lot about this about the, how the Supreme Court would respond to questions about interstate travel or state laws being applied outside of state borders. Uh, so this, I think it, it, there are lots of ways people can try to support those measures, but there's going to be a lot of uncertainty on the legal side. That's fair. And I, I think that we've got a, a sense of, of from, from your conversation today that no matter where this movement um, actually heads, that um, as your book describes deeply and thoughtfully, taking a look at um, how movements evolve are often a really, really good um, indication of, of where outcomes are moving. So if we see kind of an odd synergy or alignment between folks in one movement in the anti-abortion movement and campaign finance laws and reforms, then arguably using those tactics to try and get the types of candidates and the type of outcomes that we want is probably a likely outcome. Similarly, as we think about your, your, your deep analysis about sort of gutting the establishment, as it were, within the GOP and kind of moving to this more populist mindset, it means that maybe folks are, are less um, uh, nervous about or, or concerned about sort of upsetting the apple cart of the establishment for what traditional conservative posturing has been on an issue and more willing to take brazen approaches and brazen cases to the court. So as we continue to take stock of history and the movement of the anti-abortion side, as well as the evolution uh, of the Republican Party, just kind of in our final minutes here, I was curious if you had any broad reflection um, of what comes next. I know you have written um, very poignantly that we're just starting to see what will happen. And a lot of that will be subject to how far states go, as well as how far movements go. But as a legal historian, if you're trying to understand where the hockey puck may slide to next in terms of parties, in terms of movements, in terms of Dobbs, but just the general kind of political institutional evolution that, that results in major tectonic jurisprudence in this country, where does one look or, or where would you encourage other people who are like-minded to start looking so that way they can start taking stock of the evolution of the politics in our country? Well, I mean, I think that uh, hopefully people who weren't paying attention to abortion politics pre-Dobbs understand that it's important now. Um, if you are, you know, you know someone who can get pregnant or who takes certain kinds of drugs that could be viewed as abortifacients, even if they're not seeking abortion, this could affect you. It's affecting democratic institutions. So, I mean, this is something you should care about. It doesn't mean you have to think Dobbs was wrong, but the kind of attitude of sort of like, hey, you know, this is not my problem. I think that hopefully that attitude um, will go by the wayside. And, and then I think, um, you know, th I would hope, I mean, one of the things I've been endlessly frustrated by is that uh, there has not never been, in my opinion, enough attention to, to what actually happens to people who are pregnant, right? To things like maternal mortality or infant mortality or questions, you know, what, what folks who are pro-choice would call questions of reproductive justice, but the questions of reproductive justice that in theory, we should all agree on. There should be no one who's like pro-maternal mortality, right? That's not a position you'd think anyone would take. And so I would hope too that in, in a post-Dobbs world, it, it it's going to lay bare how little we do um, for people who are pregnant. And I would hope that at some point, people who are conservative or progressive would say, you know, if we set the abortion issue aside, which we shouldn't because it's a big deal, but if we set that aside, there are other things we need to do to expand healthcare for these people, to expand people's ability 
to collect child support, to make it such that people of color in states like Mississippi don't have maternal mortality rates on par with what we see in the developing world. Like that we should care about, we have not cared about that, but I think the price of not caring about that is about to run even higher than it already has. And so I would hope that as we continue to think about, you know, what we mean by right to abortion, we would also care about what it means to take that right away in a country that doesn't really do a whole lot to care about people who are pregnant or support them, right? And in the meantime, whether that right exists or not, I would hope that there would be more of an ability of pe- for people who disagree about this issue to say, okay, taking abortion out of it, we're failing people who are pregnant. Like we've been failing them it's, and we're continuing to fail them. And in a world without Roe, we, I mean, we couldn't afford to fail them before, but now it's going to become even more, I think. And, you know, within that reflection, there's a a very strong note of optimism, the fact that we are in this moment and it is is tragic in in every sense of the word. But how far we or people want to show up and push the movement um, to extract the kinds of outcomes that we want to make sure that other issues, as Mary just laid out, um, whether that's from maternal health to pay equity to paid time off to other issues that are ancillary to the the conversation, but obviously impact the the overall scope of how we support um, reproductive care, families and family planning are all sort of up for the shaping right now. And so I think that despite the the, his, un, the unprecedented and sort of um, um, gr- ground-shaking uh, outcomes of the Dobbs decision, um, as well as the evolution of the movement that you detail so thoughtfully in your book, Mary, that right now how people show up will be the difference maker between um, mm-hmm. what we've witnessed so far and, and what happens next. So thank you so much, Mary Ziegler. Uh, her new book, Dollars for Life, The Anti-Abortion Movement and the Fall of the Republican Establishment is out now. Um, we want to thank everybody who joined us online for this incredibly important Commonwealth Club program. And we encourage you to check out Mary's new book um, on the program website that you can find out at commonwealthclub.org. Uh, I'm Vikram Iyer. I'm a um, Commonwealth Club board member, and I just wanted to thank you all for joining today. And for any of you that's eager to see how you can continue to get involved in this issue, um, please follow Mary's guidance and all of her incredible interviews um, that she'll be doing in the coming days, uh, reflecting on this book, but also reflecting on where the movement has the possibility to go. Thank you, Mary. You've been listening to a podcast of Inforum from the Commonwealth Club of California. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live or online events at commonwealthclub.org slash inform. And join us again soon for another podcast from Inform. You never know who you'll meet.